0: This podcast will feature a science forum titled 10 common statistical mistakes to watch out for when writing or reviewing a manuscript published by eLife. Uh, as always, author names and all other information about this article are available in this podcast's description. Abstract: Inspired by broader efforts to make the conclusion, to make the conclusions of scientific research more robust, we have compiled a list of some of the most common statistical mistakes that appear in the scientific literature. The mistakes have their origins in ineffective experimental designs, inappropriate analyses, and or flawed reasoning. We provide advice on how authors, reviewers, and readers can identify and resolve these mistakes, and we hope avoid them in the future. Introduction much has been written about the need to improve the reproducibility of research, and there have been many calls for improved training in statistical analysis techniques. In this article, we discuss 10 statistical mistakes that are commonly found in the scientific literature. Although many researchers have highlighted the importance of transparency and research ethics, here we discuss statistical oversights which are out there in plain sight in papers that advance claims that do not follow from the data. Papers that are often taken at face value, despite being wrong. In our view, the most appropriate checkpoint to prevent erroneous results from being published is the peer review process at journals, or the online discussions that can follow the publication of preprints. The primary purpose of this commentary is to provide reviewers with a tool to help identify and manage these common issues. All of these mistakes are well known, and there have been many articles written about them, but they continue to appear in journals. Previous commentaries on this topic have tended to focus on one mistake or several related mistakes. By discussing ten of the most common mistakes, we hope to provide a research, a resource that research can use when reviewing manuscripts or commenting on preprints and published papers. These guidelines are also intended to be useful for researchers planning experiments, analyzing data, and writing manuscripts. Our list has its origins in the journal club at the London Plasticity Lab, which discusses papers in neuroscience, psychology, clinical, and bioengineering journals. It has been further validated by our experiences as readers, reviewers, and editors. Although this list has been inspired by papers relating to neuroscience, The relatively simple issues described here are relevant to any scientific discipline that uses statistics to assess findings. For each common mistake in our list, we discuss how the mistake can arise, explain how it can be detected by authors and or referees, and offer a solution. We note that these mistakes are often interdependent, such that one mistake will likely impact others, which means that many of them cannot be remedied in isolation. Moreover, there is usually more than one way to solve each of these mistakes. For example, we focus on frequentist frequentist parametric statistics in our solutions, but there are often Bayesian solutions that we do not discuss. To promote further discussion of these issues and to consolidate advice on how to best solve them, we encourage readers to offer alternative solutions to ours by annotating the online version of this article by clicking on the annotations icon. This will allow other readers to benefit from a diversity of ideas and perspectives. We hope that greater awareness of these common mistakes will help make authors and reviewers more vigilant in the future so that the mistakes become less common. Mistake number one, absence of an adequate control condition or group. The problem. Measuring an outcome at multiple time points is a pervasive method in science in order to assess the effect of an intervention. For instance, on examining the effect of training, it is a common to probe changes in behavior or a physiological measure. Yet, changes in outcome measures can arise due to other elements of the study that do not relate to the manipulation. Repeating the same task in the absence of an intervention might induce a change in the outcomes between pre and post intervention measurement, for example, due to the participant or the experimenter merely becoming accustomed to the experimental setting, or due to other changes relating to the passage of time. Therefore, For any studies, looking at the effect of an experimental manipulation on a variable over time, it is crucial to compare the effect of this experimental manipulation without the effect of a control manipulation. Sometimes a control group or a condition is included, but is designed or implemented inadequately by not including key factors that could impact the tracked variable. For example, the control group often does not receive a quote-unquote sham intervention, or the experimenters are not blinded to the expected outcome of the intervention, contributing to the inflated effect sizes. Other common biases result from running a small control group that is insufficiently powered to detect the tracked change, or a control group with a different baseline measure, potentially driving spurious interactions. It is also important that the control and experimental groups are sampled at the same time and with randomized allocation to minimize any biases. Ideally, the controlled manipulation should be otherwise identical to the experimental manipulation in terms of design and statistical power, and only differ in the specific stimulus dimension or variable under manipulation. In doing so, the researchers will ensure that the effect of the manipulation on the tracked variable is larger than variability over time, that is not directly driven by the desired manipulation. Therefore, reviewers should always request controls in situations where a variable is compared over time. How to detect this? Conclusions are drawn on the basis of data of a single group with no adequate control conditions. The control condition or group does not account for key features of the task that are inherent to the manipulation. Solution for researchers if the experimental design does not allow for separating the effect of time from the effect of intervention, then the conclusions regarding the impact of the intervention should be presented as tentative. Mistake number two interpreting comparisons between two effects without directly comparing them. <coughs> the problem researchers often base their conclusions regarding the impact of an intervention, such as a pre versus post intervention difference or a correlation between two variables, by noting that the intervention yields a significant expe- effect in the experimental condition or group, whereas the corresponding effect in the control condition or group is not significant. Based on these two separate test outcomes, researchers will sometimes suggest that the effect in the experimental condition or group is larger. The effect in a control condition. This type of erroneous inference is very common, but incorrect. For instance, as illustrated in Figure 1A, two variables x and y, each measured in two different groups of 20 participants, could have different outcomes in terms of statistical significance. A correlation coefficient for the correlation between the two variables in group A might be statistically significant whereas in similar correlation, coefficient might not be statistically significant for group B. This could happen even if the relationship between between the two variables is virtually identical for the two groups. So one should not infer that one correlation is greater than the other. A similar issue occurs when estimating the effect of an intervention measured in two different groups. The intervention could yield a significant effect in one group, but not in the other. Again, however, this does not mean that the effect of the intervention is different between the two groups. Indeed, in this case, the two groups do not significantly differ. One can only conclude that the effect of an intervention is different from the effect of a control intervention through a direct statistical comparison between the two effects. Therefore, rather than running two separate tests, it is essential to use one statistical test to compare the two effects. So how to detect this mistake? Well, this problem arises when the conclusion is drawn regarding a difference between two effects without statistically comparing them. This problem can occur in any situation where researchers make an inference without performing the necessary statistical analysis. Solutions for Researchers Researchers should compare the dir- groups directly when they want to contrast them. The correlations in these two groups can be compared with Monte Carlo simulations. For group comparisons, ANOVA might be suitable, although nonparametric statistics offers some tools. Mistake number 3: Inflating the unit of analysis. Now the problem The experimental unit is the smallest observation that can be randomly and independently assigned. For example, the number of independent values that are free to vary. In classical statistics, this unit will reflect the degrees of freedom. For example, when inferring group results, the experimental unit is the number of subjects tested, rather than the number of observations made within each subject. But, unfortunately, researchers tend to mix up these measures, resulting in both conceptual and practical issues. Conceptually, without clear identification of the appropriate unit to assess variation that subserves the phenomenon, the statistical inference is flawed. Practically, this results in a spuriously higher number of experimental units. For example, the number of observations across all subjects is usually greater than the number of subjects. When degrees of freedom increases, the critical statistical threshold against which statistical significance is judged decreases, making it easier to observe a significant result if there is a genuine effect. This is because there is greater confidence in the outcome of the test. To illustrate this issue, let us consider a simple pre-post longitudinal design for an intervention study in 10 participants where the researchers are interested in evaluating whether there is a correlation between their main measure and the clinical condition using a simple regression analysis. Their unit of analysis should be the number of data points, one per participant, 10 in total, resulting in eight degrees of freedom. For eight degrees of freedom, the critical R value with an alpha level of 0.05, for achieving significance is 0.63. That is, any correlation above the critical value will be significant, or p-value is less than 0.05. If the researchers combine the pre- and post-measures across participants, they will end up with 18 degrees of freedom. The critical R value is now 0.44, rendering it easier to observe a statistically significant effect. This is inappropriate because they are mixing within and between analysis units, resulting in dependencies between their measures. The pre-score of a given subject cannot be varied without impacting their post-score, meaning they only truly have 8 independent degrees of freedom. This often results in interpretation of the results as significant when in fact the evidence is insufficient to reject the possibility that there is no effect. How to detect this? The reviewer should consider the appropriate unit of analysis. If a study aims to understand group effects, then the unit of analysis should reflect the variance across subjects, not within subjects. Solutions for researchers Perhaps the best available solution to this issue is using a mixed-effects linear model, <clears throat> where researchers can define the variability within subjects as a fixed effect and the between-subject variability as a random effect. This increasingly popular approach allows one to put all of the data in the model without violating the assumption of independence. However, it can be easily misused and requires advanced statistical understanding, and as such should be applied and interpreted with some caution. For a simple regression analysis, the researchers have several available solutions to this issue, the easiest of which is to calculate the correlation for each observation separately, pre and post, and interpret the R values based on the existing degrees of freedom. The researchers can also average the values across observations or calculate the co- the correlation for pre and post separately and then average the resulting r values after applying normalization of the r distribution. Mistake number 4: spurious correlations. The problem. Correlations are an important tool in science in order to assess the magnitude of an association between two variables. Yet The use of parametric correlations, such as Pearson's R, relies on a set of assumptions which are important to consider as violation of these assumptions may give rise to spurious correlations. Spurious correlations most commonly arise if one or several outliers are present for one of the two variables. As illustrated in the top row of Figure 2, a single value away from the rest of the distribution can inflate the correlation coefficient. Spurious correlations can also arise from clusters, for example, if the data from two groups are pooled together when these two groups differ in those two variables. It is important to note that an outlier might very well provide a genuine observation which obeys the law of the phenomenon that you are trying to discover. In other words, the observation in itself is not necessarily spurious, therefore Removal of extreme data points should also be considered with great caution. But if this true observation is at risk of violating the assumptions of your statistical test, it becomes spurious de facto and will therefore require a different statistical tool. How to detect this? Reviewers should pay particular attention to reported correlations that are not accompanied by a scatterplot and consider if sufficient justification has been provided when data points have been discarded. In addition, reviewers need to make sure that between-group and between-condition differences are taken into account if data are pooled together. Solutions for researchers Robust correlation methods, for example, bootstrapping, data winterizing, skipped correlations, should be preferred in most circumstances because they are less sensitive to outliers. This is because these tests take into consideration the structure of the data. When using parametric statistics, data should be screened for violation of the key assumptions, such as independence of data points, as well as the presence of outliers. Mistake number five, use of small samples. The problem. When a sample size is small, one can only detect large effects thereby leaving high uncertainty around the estimate of the true effect size and lending to an overestimation of the actual effect size. In frequent statistics, in which significance threshold of alpha equals 0.05 is used, 5% of all statistical tests will yield a significant result in the absence of an actual effect. These are called false positives, or a type 1 error. Yet, researchers are more likely to consider a correlation with a high coefficient, for example, r is greater than 0.5, as robust than a modest correlation, for example, when r equals 0.2. With small sample sizes, the effect size of these false positives is large, giving rise to the significance fallacy, which states as follows. If the effect size is that big with a small sample size, it can only be true. Critically, the larger correlation is not a result of there being a stronger relationship between the two variables. It is simply because the overestimation of the actual correlation coefficient will always be larger with a small sample size. For instance, when sampling two uncorrelated variables with n equals 15, simulated false positive correlations roughly range between 0.5 and 0.75. Whereas, when sampling the same uncorrelated variables with n equals 100 yields false positive correlations in the range of 0.2 to 0.25. Designs with a small sample size are also more susceptible to missing an effect that exists in the data, known as a type 2 error. For a given effect size, for example, the difference between two groups, the chances are greater for detecting the effect with a large sample size. This likelihood is referred to as statistical power. Hence, with large samples, yet reduced likelihood, you reduce the likelihood of not detecting an effect when one is actually present. Let me read that again. Hence, with large samples, you reduced the likelihood of not detecting an effect when one is actually present. Another problem related to small sample size is that the distribution of the sample is more likely to deviate from normality. and the limited sample size makes it often impossible to rigorously test and to rigorously test the assumption of normality. In regression analysis, deviations from the distribution might produce extreme outliers, resulting in spurious significant correlations. So how to detect this? Reviewers should critically examine the sample size used in the paper and judge whether the sample size is sufficient. Extraordinary claims based on a limited number of participants should be flagged in particular. Solutions for researchers. A single effect size or a single p-value from a small sample is of limited value and reviewers can refer to researchers reviewers can refer researchers to Button et al. 2013 to make this point. The researcher should either present evidence that they have been sufficiently powered to detect the effect to begin with, such as through the presentation of an a priori statistical power analysis, or perform a replication of their study. The challenge with power circulations is that these should be based on an a priori calculation of effect size from an independent data set. And these are difficult to assess in the review. Bayesian statistics offer opportunities to determine the power for identifying an effect post hoc. In situations where sample size may be inherently limited, for example, when researchers with rare clinical populations or non human primates, efforts should be made to provide replications both within and between cases and to include sufficient controls. Some statistical solutions are offered for assembling case studies. For example, the Crawford T-test in Corbalis 2009. Mistake number six, circular analysis. The problem. Circular analysis is any form of analysis that retrospectively selects features of the data to characterize the dependent variables, resulting in a distortion of the resulting statistical test. Circular analysis can take many shapes and forms, but it inherently relates to recycling the same data to first characterize the test variables and then to make the statistical inferences from them, and is thus often referred to as double-dipping. Most commonly, circular analysis is used to divide or reduce the complete data set using a selection criterion that is retrospective and inherently relevant to the statistical outcome. For example, let's consider a study of a neuronal population firing rate in response to a given manipulation. When comparing the population as a whole, no significant differences are found between pre- and post-manipulation. However, the researchers observe that some of the neurons respond to the manipulation by increasing the firing rate whereas others decrease in response to the manipulation. They therefore split the population to subgroups by binning the data based on the activity levels observed at baseline. This leads to a significant interaction effect. Those neurons that initially produced low responses show response increases, whereas the neurons that initially showed relatively increased activity exhibit reduced activity following the manipulation. However, this significant interaction is a result of the distorting selection criterion and the combination of statistical artifacts, and could therefore be observed in pure noise. Another common form of circular analysis is when dependencies are created between the dependent and independent variables. Continuing with the example from above. Researchers might report a correlation between the cell response post-manipulation and between the difference in cell response across the pre- and post-manipulation. But both variables are highly dependent on the post-manipulation measure. Therefore, neurons that by chance fire more strongly in the post-manipulation measure are likely to show greater changes relative to the independent pre-manipulation measure thus inflating the correlation. Selective analysis is perfectly justifiable when the results are statistically independent of the selection criterion under the null hypothesis. However, circular analysis recruits the noise to inflate the statistical outcome, resulting in distorted and hence invalid statistical inference. Mistake number seven. Flexibility of analysis, p-hacking, the problem. Using flexibility in data analysis, such as switched outcome parameters, adding covariates, undetermined or erratic pre-processing pipeline, post hoc outlier, or subject exclusion, increases the probability of obtaining significant p-values. This is because normative statistics rely on probabilities And therefore, the more tests you run, the more likely you are to encounter a false positive result. Therefore, observing a significant p-value in a given data set is not necessarily complicated, and one can always come up with a plausible explanation for any significant effect, particularly in the absence of a specific prediction. Yet, the more variation in one's analysis pipeline the greater the likelihood that observed effects are not genuine. Flexibility in data analysis is especially visible when the same community reports the same outcome variable but computes the variable of this variable but computes the value of this variable in different ways across the paper, or when clinical trials switch their outcomes. This problem can be preempted by using standardized analytical approaches, pre-registration of the design and analysis, or undertaking a replication study. Note that pre-registration of experiments can be performed after the results of a first experiment are known and before an internal replication of that effect is sought. But perhaps the way the best way to prevent p-hacking is to show some tolerance to borderline or non-significant results. In other words, if the experiment is well designed, executed, and analyzed, reviewers should not punish the researchers for their data. How to detect this? Flexibility of analysis is difficult to detect because researchers rarely disclose all the necessary information. In the case of pre-registration or clinical trial registration, the reviewer should compare the analyses performed with the planned analysis. In the absence of pre-registration, it is almost impossible to detect some forms of p-hacking. Yet, reviewers can estimate whether all of the analyses whether all of the analysis choices are well justified. Whether the same analysis plan was used in previous publications? whether the researchers came up with a questionable new variable, or whether they collected a large battery of measures and only reported a few significant ones. Practical tips for detecting likely positive findings are summarized in Fordsmeyer et al. 2017. Mistake number eight, failing to correct for multiple comparisons. The problem. When researchers explore task effects, they often explore the effect of multiple task conditions on multiple variables, sometimes with an undetermined a priori hypothesis. This practice is termed exploratory analysis as opposed to confirmatory analysis, which by definition is more restrictive. When performed with frequent statistics, conducting multiple comparisons during exploratory analysis can have profound consequences for the interpretation of significant findings. In any experimental design involving more than two conditions, exploratory analysis will involve multiple comparisons and will increase the probability of detecting an effect even if no such effect exists. This is known as a false positive, or a type 1 error. In this case, the large number of factors, the greater the number of tests, they can be performed. As a result, the probability of observing a false positive increases. For example, in a 2x3x3 by three by three experimental design, the probability of finding at least one significant main or interaction effect is 30%, even when there is no effect. This problem is particularly salient when conducting multiple independent comparisons. In such cases, researchers are technically deploying statistical tests within every voxel, cell, or time point, thereby increasing the likelihood of detecting a false positive result due to the large number of measures included in the design. For example, Bennett and colleagues identified a significant number of active voxels in a dead Atlantic salmon when not correcting for multiple comparisons. This example demonstrates how easy it can be to identify a spurious, significant result. Although it is more problematic when the analyses are exploratory, it can still be a concern when a large set of analyses are specified a priori for confirmatory analysis. Solutions for Researchers Exploratory testing can be absolutely appropriate, but should be acknowledged. Researchers should disclose all measured variables and properly implement the use of multiple comparison procedures. For example, applying standard corrections for multiple comparisons unsurprisingly resulted in no active voxels in the dead fish example from Bennett et al. 2009. Bear in mind that there are many ways to correct for multiple comparisons, some more well accepted than others and therefore the mere presence of some form of correction may not be sufficient. Mistake number 9 overinterpreting non non-significant results. The problem, when using frequentist statistics, sequen- scientists apply a statistical threshold, normally alpha equals 0.05, for adju- adjudicating statistical significance, Much has been written about the arbitrariness of this threshold, and alternatives have been proposed. Aside from these issues, which we elaborate in our final remarks, misinterpreting the results of a statistical test when the outcome is not significant is also highly problematic, but extremely common. This is because a non-significant p-value does not distinguish between the lack of an effect due to the effect being objectively absent, or due to the insensitivity of the data to enable the researchers to rigorously evaluate the prediction. In simple words, non-significant effects could literally mean very different things. A true null result, an underpowered genuine effect, or an ambiguous effect, Therefore, if the researchers wish to interpret a non-significant result as supporting evidence against the hypothesis, they need to demonstrate that this evidence is meaningful. The p-value in itself is insufficient for this purpose. The confound also means that sometimes researchers might ignore a result it did not meet the p is less than 0.05 threshold assuming it is meaningless when in fact it provides sufficient evidence against the hypothesis, or at least preliminary evidence that requires further attention. How to detect this? Researchers might interpret or describe a non-significant p-value as indicating that an effect was not present. This error is very common and should be highlighted as problematic. Solutions for researchers. An important first step is to report effect sizes together with p-values in order to provide information about the magnitude of the effect, which is also important for any future meta-analyses. For example, if a non-significant effect in the study with a large sample size is also very small in magnitude, it is unlikely to be theoretically meaningful, whereas one with a moderate effect size could potentially warrant further research. When possible, researchers should consider using statistical approaches that are capable of distinguishing between insufficient or ambiguous evidence and evidence that supports the null hypothesis or equivalence tests. Alternatively, researchers might have already determined a priori whether they have sufficient statistical power to identify the desired effect or to determine whether the confidence intervals of this prior effect contains the null, otherwise researchers should not overinterpret non-significant results and only describe them as non-significant. Problem number 10, correlation and causation. The problem. This is perhaps the oldest and most common error made when interpreting statistical results. In science, correlations are often used to explore the relationship between two variables. When two variables are found to be significantly correlated, it is often tempting to assume that one causes the other. This is, however, incorrect. Just because variability of two variables seems to linearly co-occur does not necessarily mean that there is causal relationship between them. Even if such an association is plausible for example a significant correlation observed between annual chocolate consumption and number of nobel laureates for different countries has led to the incorrect suggestion that t- chocolate intake provides nutritional ground for sprouting for sprouting nobel laureates rather correlation alone cannot be used as evidence for a cause effect relationship correlated occurrences may reflect direct or reverse causation, but can also be due to an unknown common cause, or they may be a result of a simple coincidence. If possible, solutions for researchers. If possible, the researchers should try to explore the relationship with a third variable to provide further support for their interpretation. For example, using hierarchically hierarchical modeling or mediation analysis, but only if they have sufficient power, by testing competing models or by directly manipulating the variable of interest in a randomized controlled trial. Otherwise, causal language should be avoided when the evidence is correlational.